This is a new mic. There we go. All right, there we go. It's a new mic setup and a new head for this headset, so we were trying to get it all worked out a little bit beforehand. Um, thank you, to Paul and the worship team. It's a little intimidating to come up and speak after worship like that because that's vertical. That's praising God. That's edifying. And then I get to come up here and do the horizontal where I teach to you. And hopefully what I teach will, will help you in the vertical part. But thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm half tempted to say, uh, let's all just go to IHOP. You know, we're, we're done. You can't put a finer point than that on it, right? Um, I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit. When you start uh, schooling to be a pastor, one of the pieces of advice that they give you is to create or write what they call a back pocket sermon. Pastors know this term. I'm sharing it with you secret. A back pocket sermon is just on the off chance that somebody says to you, uh, hey, can you preach in a couple days? You've got it right there, right? And you say, sure, sure, I can do that. So I wrote this sermon initially a couple of years ago when I was doing my undergrad in theology. And this is a real unique situation for me because typically when you go to a church to preach, um, you kind of swoop in, you preach the lesson, you say thank you very much for your hospitality, and then you scurry away. But for the past several weeks, I've been here, and I feel like I'm part of this now. So being able to come here and do this one, there are some semi-autobiographical bits in this lesson that I'm completely comfortable sharing with you because many of you are getting to know me better, especially the kids. And I haven't scared them yet, so that's a good thing. When I first moved up to East Tennessee, I, uh, my first job was in Oak Ridge. And so I worked in Oak Ridge for six years, and I was astounded at the intelligence in Oak Ridge. And it's true here, and I'm not just trying to butter you all up, but I, I, have, I have yet to meet a more biblically, can't even say it, literate group of people. It is amazing the uh, amount of knowledge that you have. And so when I was looking at this, I thought this lesson is perfect to talk with knowledgeable people. So I have a confession for you. I'm going to start out. I've always been a bit of what some people might call a know-it-all. You know the type? The person that fills their head with knowledge that most people would consider useless information, right? Not necessarily the smartest guy in the room, but the one that's always really willing to tell you when he does have the answer, right? The guy that you want on your Trivia Pursuit team, okay? But not for sports, because I'm terrible at sports. But I can tell you the name of the actor who played the skipper on Gilligan's Island, okay? I mean, that, that's that kind of stuff, right? So I've always been that guy. And there's a reason for that. I have a twin brother. Now, before you start worrying that there are two people running around with this face, um, my twin brother and I could not be more fraternal than we are. We're the exact opposite. Donald was always the athlete. He's three minutes younger than I am and was faster than a rabbit, could climb like a monkey, swim like a fish, everything I could not do. When we were um, six years old, we got our first bicycles. True story. It took me a year to learn how to ride a bicycle without training wheels. Donald demanded that the training wheels be taken off that day 
And that day, he was riding his bike up and down the street without training wheels on. He was fearless. He would do anything. He's still kind of that way today. We've both mellowed a lot. But you find when you can't compete physically that there's got to be something else you're good at. And what I discovered was that I love to read and I love to learn and I love to remember. Much like a lot of you here, I suspect. So what happens when you become that person? You are typically addressed with a particular question that becomes very familiar to people like us. And that question is, how do you know? Right? How many of you here have been asked that question before? I know all my kids have in youth group. I know because they're super smart. And at some point, something that you are passionate about, something that you are knowledgeable about, a question will come up and somebody will ask it and you will say, well, the answer is so-and-so. And you'll immediately be asked, well, how do you know? Right? It happens. It's very familiar. So, I suspect that today we're going to cover a little bit of ground and look at a new understanding of knowing. How do we know? All right? I want to address the question and the biblical passage that we're going to focus on is in Exodus chapter 6, if you have your Bible handy, starting at verse 7. But let me give you a, a little bit of a recap as to what's been going on first. We're at the point in the story where Moses has, been, has met with God for the first time. And God has said to him, I want you to go back to Egypt, where you've been away from for quite a bit of time. And I want you to not only go back to Egypt, but I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him that, you're going to release my, that he should release my people. And Moses initially says, well, wait, wait a second now. All right, I'm slow of speech. You know, I'm, uh, I, I don't know that I can do this. And, and God gives Moses miraculous signs. You remember the, the staff that he could throw down to turn into a serpent? He could take his hand and put it in his cloak and, and bring it out, and it would look like it was covered in leprosy, but then he could put it back in, and it was clean. I'd like to see David Blaine pull that one off on a special, right? God gave him those miraculous gifts. God also said, take your brother Aaron. Okay? Because there were two things that they were going to have to do. First, they were going to have to go to Moses' people, to the Israelites, and win them over. Yes, God sent us. Yes, we are going to get you freed from Pharaoh. Then Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, okay, my people, we just want to take them out into the wilderness and have some time together. And Pharaoh says, no, you can't do that. Matter of fact, in Exodus 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Have any of you ever gone to bat for somebody before? Have you ever had to do that for like a brother or a sister? I, I'm from a, a family of, of five kids, okay? It wasn't very often that we had each other's back, but 
sometimes you would go to mom or dad and say, well, you know, here was the thing, and then you'd end up in trouble too, right? Or you'd go for a friend of yours. It can happen. And I, and I sense this frustration in Moses at this point because he's gone to bat for his people. He's gone to Pharaoh. And what does Pharaoh do? He says, no, no, they're going to continue to make the same quota of bricks that they've been making, but I'm not going to give them the straw anymore. They're going to have to go get their own. So he's made it even harder than it was before for them at this point. And Moses approaches God, and he says, why did you even send me? I can feel that frustration. Why? It's worse now. Why did you do this? So in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, we pick up right here, okay, where God responds to Moses by laying out his intentions toward his chosen people. God says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And this is the important part. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore you with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. I always love when God ends with that, I am the Lord. You know, we always punctuate our sentences, right? We put a period, question mark, exclamation point, so we kind of know the intent. God ends it with, I am the Lord, just as to remind you of who's talking here. If I promise, you can take it to the bank, is what he's saying, right? I know as a dad, I've had to do that sometimes with my kids growing up, just to run, hey, 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 I'm your dad. God says, hey, I am the Lord. God's desire was that his people would know him. But in what way? Like we're talking about? Like being the know-it-all? Like reading about it? Or was there more to it? When you start studying scripture, and I know all of you know this, context is so important. There was a sign that was making its rounds on social media a couple of years ago. Supposedly in front of a business, depends on where you read it, it could have been in Philadelphia, it could have been in Florida, the business sign said, we would rather do business with a thousand Al-Qaeda terrorists than with one single American soldier. And social media exploded. People were ready to, uh, you know, have uh, walks with signs. They were going to boycott. You know, who is this business? Why would they do this? Why would somebody think this way? And I remember reading that sign and thinking to myself, okay, all right, all right, emotions aside for just a minute, this is America, right? If somebody wants to do that, I guess they can, but wouldn't it hurt their business? I always go at it mentally, you know, as a pragmatist first. Is that a good idea? To survive your business like that? Turns out that business was a funeral parlor. It changes the way we feel about it, doesn't it? Once we understand the context, we look at that sign and get offended immediately as Americans. And then we find out the truth and we go, well, that's kind of clever, right? That's not so bad. Suddenly I'm not offended. 
Are you? It's all about the context. And the context is important, right? So how did the Hebrew people, what was their context for this idea of to know God? Well, there were three ways that the Hebrews understood to know. The first way was very similar to us. It had to do with information, data, memory. I confessed about being a know-it-all, so I'm going to share a true story with you real quick. I was working here in Oak Ridge, manufacturing sciences on Illinois Avenue back in the day when cell phones were not smartphones. They were just like the, you know, the flip kind or the whip antenna kind of phone, right? And I got a call on my cell phone from a 941 area code. That's Bradenton, Florida, my hometown. So I knew that while I didn't recognize the number, it had to be a family member. There had to be something going on. So I answer the phone. And I hear my sister Beth's voice on the other end of the phone. Now, my sister Beth and I are, uh, we're not as close as my sister Bonnie and I are. We do talk. But it's rare, and I didn't recognize the number. And you, can, you ever talk to somebody on the phone, especially back in the day, and you, you can hear kind of the background noise, and you're thinking, where are you? Right? It took me a minute to kind of figure out even who it was. But the conversation went like this. Hey, David, um, we, uh, we're just uh, standing around here getting ready to do surgery. Time out for a second. Beth is a surgical scrub technician. So what her job is is to clean and prepare the operating theater so that when people come in for surgery, everything's ready to go, all the tools are lined up, everything, you know, the doctor's got it exactly the way he wants it. And then part of her job is to stay in there during surgery to assist if any assistance is needed. Yeah, we're, we're in here, we're getting ready to go, we were just having a conversation. What was the name of the band that popularized the song Wild Thing? And it's the middle of a work day. And I'm like, the Trogs? And she said, hang on just a second. Was it the Trogs? And then I hear a strange man's voice yell, that's it, let's go. And she said, all right, we got to go replace this guy's knee. Got to go by click and hung up the phone. <laughs> that was not the only time I'd get calls like that. That's just one example. But it was before the time when we all carried Google in our pocket. How many of you Google? We all do it, don't we? Merriam-Webster lists Google as a verb. It's true now that you can say, I'm going to Google that. And you're right. Because knowledge is so important to us. We've gotten to a point now where we can just, we can get that answer for you real fast. But that was one way also that these Hebrew people understood knowledge. Right? In Genesis 44:27, Jacob is talking to one of his sons. He has, obviously, many sons. And he says, you know that my wife bore me two sons. He's talking about his wife, Rachel, who bore him two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Okay? Now, that's fact. Right? That's just simple fact. Everybody in that conversation already knew that. All right? That would be like me talking to my son Ian and saying to him, you know that you have a brother and a sister. We all know that. 
Well, some of you don't know that. But those of us in the conversation know that, right? And that's what's going on here. Jacob says, you know that my wife bore me two sons. Yes, we all know that. But it was just a statement of knowledge. It is here. It is this. There's another one in Exodus 3, 7. The Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. He knows because he's taken that data in, right? He's processed it. He's understand. Of course, he's God, so he's omniscient. But he knows. He knows because he's seen and processed, right? So what's the second way that the Hebrews understood the word no? The second way had to do with being relational or experiential. What that means is quite simply... Uh, how intimate, how well do you know somebody? I can speak from this actually uh, probably very well because I just came here, what, five weeks ago now. The first Sunday that I came, I walked through the door. I wasn't even sure where to go. I knew what time. Chris had you know, said, you know, we, we do Sunday school at 9.30. So I came through the front door, and the worship team was practicing, and I'm going to embarrass Sharon, I'm sorry, but, but, but Sharon got off the stage and, and came back there right away. Sharon smiles with her eyes. I, I just, I love that about her. And, um, and she introduced herself, and I'm terrible with names, but I knew that I would remember her name forever because I didn't know anybody here except for Chris at that point. And she told me, you know, where I needed to go and that sort of thing. So there, there was a relation. Every week when I came in, I, that's Sharon while I'm learning the rest of you. Now many of you I can call by name. Some I'm still working on. Forgive me, it's taken me a little while, but I will get there. So it's a relational thing. In Genesis 4.1, it says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Two chapters before that, in Genesis 2, we're, we're given the detailed creation of Eve, of Adam and then Eve. And Adam says about Eve, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. I will call her woman. I'm pretty sure he already knew who she was, right? They're the only two people in the world at this point. And in chapter 4, it says Adam knew Eve. What does he just walk by and go, it's Eve, right? I don't think that's what they mean there. What they mean in that particular instance is that Adam and Eve were intimate. And that's a different level of knowledge. Things that Eve knows about Adam that nobody else could ever possibly know because of their relationship. Think about the relationships in your life. Think about the people who are your closest to and the things that you know about them here that, that it's, it's got nothing to do with here. That's completely different. There's another example in, in uh, the book of Numbers along the same lines. Numbers 31, 18. They're talking about these prisoners of war that they have brought in to the camp and they're trying to decide what they're going to do with them. And 31, 18, they say, but all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him keep alive for yourselves. All these girls who have never been intimately close with a man we will, we will keep. So for them to know the same Hebrew word, yada, to know, it means intimacy. It means a closeness. 
I think, and this is just David Huey's commentary here for you for a minute, but I think society has gotten bad about that. I think we spend a little too much time, and I'm guilty too, like this, instead of like this. In the office building where I work throughout the week, you go in, and I work on the top floor, and you get on the elevator, and if anybody's not staring at their phone on the elevator, it catches your attention because it's become the common thing to do now. Sometimes, I think, to avoid getting to know the people in your building. And it's unfortunate. Your neighbors, are they, is it, you know, a case of, hey, that's, um, that's so-and-so that lives two doors down. Or do you know your neighbor? I know my neighbor's on either side of me, but I must confess, we live in a cul-de-sac. Aside from those two houses, if you quizzed me on the names, I don't know them. I'm ashamed to admit. I don't. And that's just sort of become the norm instead of the exception. The intimacy is so important to know if you really want to. I'm going to give you a great example. A couple of years ago, Angie and I went to uh, one of those medieval festivals up in uh, Harriman. Wanted to get like a turkey leg and see people in weird costumes and, you know, juggling and, and you know, that kind of stuff. It's, it's something fun to do on a Saturday. It was just the two of us. So we decided to drive up there. Now, uh, I'm a type 1 diabetic. Here's another semi-autobiographical fact for you. You can write that down. I became diabetic when I was 14, so I've been diabetic longer than some of you have been alive. All right? Um, when your blood sugar goes low, it affects your mental and it affects your physical. But nobody feels it as soon as you do as a diabetic. You just do. You feel it. It feels like there's lead weights on the inside of you all of a sudden. Now, Angie drove that particular day. So uh, we had gotten there and we had walked around and I started to feel my blood sugar going down a little bit. But I didn't want to alarm her because I knew we were going to have lunch. And lunch is the fix for low blood sugar, right? You just need a little bit of food. So we were walking back to the car, and she was driving. I knew we were going to the uh, gas station, and I was holding her hand, and I sighed. It literally sounded just like this. That's it. And she stopped in her tracks, and she said, your blood sugar is low. Now, there is not another human being on the face of this planet that could take that cue and say, your blood sugar is low. But my wife can, to me. She does it to our son Ian, too, because he's like, unfortunately inherited that trait from his father. But she'll do it to him, and it drives him crazy sometimes because he's at the table, and she'll say, go check your blood sugar. Mom, I know it's fine. No, go check it. And she's, nine times out of ten, she's right. It's that intimacy. It surpasses this, and it goes into this. And that's so important. God desires us to know him in a much similar way than how he knows us. In John 10.27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. Do you think Jesus just knows factual information about you? He knows where you live. He knows what your favorite color is, that kind of stuff. 
I think it's more than that, isn't it? Let me read Psalm 139 to you, part of this. I love this psalm. It's from David. It says to the choir master, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed me, my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You made me. That psalm speaks so much about how God knows us because he made us and how God desires for us to know him. Luke 12, 7 says that the hairs of our head are numbered. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know how many are on your head. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, right? Maybe that's not that impressive of a feat if you're looking at me, but maybe it is. Don't these count? Don't these count? Huh? And if you were really, really close with me and you put your hand up here, you'd say that they were there even though you can't see them. I can feel them. The hairs on your head are numbered. The freckles on your skin are numbered. Every bump, every scar physical and emotional is known to God who created you. Does that scare you? Because it makes me a little nervous. And I've been a Christian my whole life. But there are times when the reality of that just hits me. He knows everything about me. Every thought, every feeling, every ugly part because it happens because I'm human yeah he does and he says I love you anyway hmm. that brings us to the third way that the Hebrews understood how to know and it was about ethical actions your actions how what do they what do they say about you the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 22, 13 through 16, he, he's calling out the king, Shalom, for his behavior. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice. 
Who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him wages? Who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious room and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion? Do you think that you're a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me? This is the put up or shut up part. Are your actions defining who you are as a Christian? Do you have the honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker on your car, but you won't let somebody into traffic? Do people know or at least have a pretty good idea what you're doing on Sunday just based on your behavior throughout the week? I think that's another way that God wants us to get to know him and how they understood that. Now the problem is, as we take it into the barn here, I can't see the clock there. I think I'm still good on time. But the problem is that how we know God is, is the emphasis. I started today by asking you, how do you know? I said, this is a familiar question. We've all heard it. How do you know? Right? You notice when we say that, or at least when I say it, the stress comes on you. How do you know? Doesn't that sound right? Is that how you've heard it? How do you know? But the stress should be on how do you know? Is your knowledge of God Google? Is your knowledge of God everything that comes out of the Bible? Which is not a bad thing. But if it's constrained to just that, you're only getting part of the picture. Is your knowledge of God what other people have told you? What you've studied and what you've read? Or is it intimate? Is it personal? Is it something that you experience daily? that's the other side of it and it's so important how do you know God somebody's going to ask you that question if they haven't already I think you should be prepared to answer I know I am but I'm also a work in progress so is God someone that we can really get to know the way that he knows us. I would say that that's a tough call because we're not God. We can't possibly know God the way God knows us. Matter of fact, in, in Romans 11.33, Paul says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. It sounds like it's a very high bar to try to get, right? He goes on later in 1 Corinthians. He kind of gives us a little glimmer of hope for what's coming. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know how. Fully. I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. 
We know it's going to be there. We will know someday. But for, for now, we strive to know. We strive to get closer. And it's not just this, it's also this. And it's not just this, but it's also our actions. It's how we walk our walk and live our lives. Every single day. I don't know if you're like me, Sunday is, is a special day. It's church, it's worship, it's prayer. And then throughout the week, not so much sometimes. How am I supposed to know God? How am I supposed to grow closer to God if I don't make a concerted effort every day? So, where does that leave us? Well, that leaves us with your challenge for this week. There's a challenge? Yes, there is a challenge. Your challenge this week is simply this. Take a minute, take five minutes, if you can, every day. In prayer, in quiet time, maybe when you're journaling, however it works best for you. Believe it or not, sometimes my best conversations with God are in the car while I'm going down the road because I really need Him. I drive Alcoa Highway every day. But sometimes it's just because it's the, the, the one moment where I'm, I'm kind of here. You know? I can't be distracted this way or that way. Right? So I'm in the car. So I will talk to God. And if you ever pull up next to, especially while I'm driving the, the green car, if you haven't seen the green car, it's, it's very easy to spot. If there are tears coming down my face, there's probably nothing wrong. I'm probably just talking to God. But it does happen. Right? So take a few moments every day and just ask the Lord, Lord, how can I know you in a new way? Show me something that I can do. Show me someone that I can reach out to. That's what I want you to do this week. Work on how you know God. Let us pray. Father God, I am constantly humbled by the fact that you want to know me. And not just that you want to know me, that you know me and you still love me despite me. Father, would you just in a very real way speak to us and just bring us closer in relationship to you. Thank you, God, for this body. Thank you for these people who are so warm and welcoming. Lord, thank you for Pastor Chris and for Robin. I just pray that, that while they are down there, that you will give him not just peace, but shalom. Or that he would just come back with a permanent smile affixed to his face, bigger than the one he normally has. Father, just be with us this week. Remind us of your presence. Keep us safe. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.